Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, good morning, everyone. Great to see you guys today. Let's take out our Bibles. Today's our last day in Exodus. So let's get out our Bibles. Let's go to Exodus 39 today. We're going to look at the last little movement of the book of Exodus. We've really flown through this book together. We've uh, only taken 17 weeks to go through these 40 chapters. So there's been a lot that we haven't been able to look at or haven't been able to say. Uh, But I hope that God has been speaking to your heart, has been encouraging you in the Exodus that he wants to perform in you still today. So I know it's been a privilege for me to be able to wrestle with this text, and I can't wait for our next book of the Bible that we're going to jump into. We're going to go to forward in the Old Testament to one of the prophets, the prophet Micah. Micah has so much to say about Jesus. Just thinking about the book of Micah, one of the ways I would say it is, you can know Jesus pretty good without the book of Micah, but you can know Jesus so much better with the book of Micah because he anticipates so much of what Jesus is all about. So if you want to grow in your understanding, your knowledge of him, deeper intimacy with him, and build a hope for the future, uh, then the book of Micah is a book for you. How many of you guys could use a little bit of hope right now? You know, So the book of Micah, great book for that, uh, and that's what we'll be doing. We'll start that uh, next Sunday. Okay, today, uh, like I said, uh, book of Exodus, uh, we left off, we went through chapter 34, uh, but chapter 35 all the way through chapter 40 is basically a repetition of what God has already told Moses about building the tabernacle. He, He gave Moses the plans for it, and then chapter 35 to 40 is just a repeat of what God said the plans were as they built the tabernacle. So it'll be a little tedious to just read through all of that again. And so I want to jump forward to chapter 39, verse 42, and uh, let's read together. It says, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded them, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. So they built the tabernacle. They built everything as God had described. And Moses blesses the people. Now jump forward to chapter 40, verse 32. It says, when they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, verse 36, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight 
of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The end to the book of Exodus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this incredible story that is the story. The story of a God who sees his people in despair, slavery, captivity, and brokenness and comes down to rescue them through the blood so that they might come out, be free, and now live under his guidance and leadership. Lord, we thank you for that beautiful story. We believe that it's our story, that the book of Exodus was merely a preamble to what Jesus would come and do for the world. And so, Lord, today as we wrap up our study, our, 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 our time meditating on this book together as a church, as a congregation, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us from this closing passage of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, this day that we read of in this passage, it was a long time coming. It had been less than a year since Moses heard Yahweh speak to him at the burning bush, but considering all that occurred from that episode to this episode, it felt like 100 years. So much had happened among God's people. Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods had lost the blood of the Passover lamb, had protected the Red Sea's waters, had parted. The waters were healed. The manna fell, and Israel had come back to the mountain where Moses had heard the great I am in the bush that was burning yet not consumed. And Moses had gone up to that mountain over and over again on behalf of Israel. Each time he did, Yahweh revealed himself to his man and to his nation. He invited them into a covenant, which is what we've been studying these last few weeks together. He gave them commandments, and he complemented those commandments with a book of the covenant that illustrated his law. Because they accepted his words, Yahweh told them that they should then build him a tabernacle, a dwelling place for God in Israel's midst. I think Moses was likely beside himself to learn that God was going to make a home for himself among his people, a, a, a portable Sinai, Mount Sinai among God's people, a, a miniature Eden where God would walk among his nation so they could experience the living God. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Moses' dreams were temporarily dashed when he came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments in his hands and the plan for this glorious house of God. The people in the valley below had made a replacement God and a replacement religion. And as they raged in their debauchery, Moses ran to God in intercession. Remember, Moses prayed to God three times, God, please Go with us into the land. Do not leave us. And God assured him, I will go with you. Then Moses said to God, show me your glory. And God would not reveal the full blast of his glory to this man, but instead covered him in the cleft of the rock while he passed by and declared his name. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Then after saying this, after revealing himself, God reiterated his covenant to his people. These golden calf worshiping Hebrews were still God's people. He still loved them. He still had a plan for them. He would move forward with them and extend his grace and his love to them. It was time to build that tabernacle and keep that covenant. So Moses led the charge in building the tabernacle just as God had detailed in a nearly word-for-word copy of what we've already seen in the book of Exodus. Exodus details the entire construction process. The Ark of the Covenant was built, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, the lampstand, the laver, the altar of sacrifice, the courts, the priests, and their garments. Every last bit was built according to God's specifications. And as they built, I think Moses' anticipation grew. The God who had revealed his beautiful nature to Moses on the mountain was about to come down that mountain and dwell in his tent among his people. And when that structure came together, Moses saw that it was done just as Yahweh had said. So Moses, as we read, blessed them, set up the tabernacle, approached its altar with his brother Aaron and Aaron's sons, with everything set up just as God had said, Moses' work, the text says, was finished. And when it was, the glory cloud of Yahweh covered the tent of meeting. Though Israel had broken their promise when they worshiped the golden calf, God extended his grace and restored his people, and now he would dwell in their midst. Yahweh inhabited his house. In other words, this chaotic mass of Egyptian slaves was now God's treasured possession, and he was theirs. With Yahweh's glory cloud upon his house, Israel and Moses had realized their dreams. I mean, I think this moment with the glory of God coming upon this tabernacle, if you could combine the most beautiful sunset over the Grand Canyon with the most moving orchestra crescendo and the most powerful rocket launch, you would only get a glimpse of the glory of this moment. I mean, they're just feeling it as this glory cloud of God comes upon this tabernacle. Pharaoh had said that he was God in their midst, but now God was truly in their midst. Everything they needed to become God's kingdom of priests and a holy nation who would show the world his true nature was now theirs. They'd done it, God had done it, and now they would move with God wherever he went into the promised land. Then Moses tried to enter. He wanted to be where God was. This is expected when you're reading the book of Exodus. Moses had gone up to God's presence on Mount Sinai seven times at this point. When God's glory descended, Moses was there for it. On one of those journeys, Moses was in God's presence for nearly six weeks. When Israel sinned with the golden calf, God shared his broken heart and his anger with his friend. They were close. 
Before they constructed the tabernacle, Moses had built a temporary tent for meeting outside the camp where he communed with God and was literally transfigured after spending time with him. His face shined with the afterglow of God's glory every time he left God's presence. And when Moses asked God, can I see your glory? God revealed his glorious name to Moses when he was hidden there in the cleft of the rock. But now, after all of these encounters, it was time to Moses, for Moses to have his ultimate experience of Yahweh. I'm gonna go into God's house. But it says in verse 35, but Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Now, some say that Moses could not enter because, well, God's presence was too thick, too overwhelming in that moment. But that's a strange answer to me because Moses had often gone into God's thick and overwhelming glory cloud on top of the mountain. So what changed? Some people say that the thing that changed is that the golden calf had been worshiped and that fractured God's relationship with his people. So now Moses could not enter freely into God's presence on behalf of the nation. But Moses, after the golden calf episode, had heard God's name on the mountain and seen his afterglow after the golden calf debacle. God had stated words of restoration and grace over Israel. He was moving forward with his plan. The problem is intense. If Moses could not go in, who in the world could go in? If a guy like Moses cannot go into the tabernacle, who can? What Israelite or any of us, for that matter, has any chance of knowing God, which is kind of the purpose of studying this book at the end of the day, if Moses himself was kept from God's presence. Moses, the man whose face afterglowed God's glory and who talked with God face to face like a friend, he could not go in. And with God in his holy tabernacle as fire and smoke, how could golden calf worshipers expect to go in there? Wouldn't their sin, wouldn't our sin be like gasoline on the fire that is God? If Moses couldn't do it, how could they? If a holy man like him was denied, wouldn't we be as well? And it necessitates a question. It's a question the psalmist asked. Who shall sojourn in your tent, O Lord? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who can go into God's house on his holy hill? Who can go into God's presence? Now that Exodus ends on this cliffhanger note should not discourage us. We got all the way to this point. Moses tries to go in. He can't go in, but it should instead drive us forward in the biblical story. You know, the first five books of the Bible, I don't know if you know this, but they are a set together, the Pentateuch or the Torah. Uh, They're a set, and the very next line in this set helps us learn what is required to go into God's presence. Look at the next line with me on the screen or right there in the Bibles on your laps. It says, then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord from the livestock, you may bring your offering from the herd or the flock. And he goes on to describe the sacrifices that they needed to bring. So Moses could not go in, which makes us wonder who can go in, and the book of Leviticus gives us the answer. 
It goes on to detail the requirements for sacrifices and priesthood so Israel could meet with God in that sacred space. I I haven't wanted to tell you guys this all throughout our study of the book of Exodus because I know some people have feelings about the book of Leviticus, but it appears that the book of Exodus is merely the prologue to the book of Leviticus. It's kind of like you've gotten all the way to this point. Who can go in? Leviticus gives you the answer. It goes on to detail the requirements for the sacrifices and priesthood so Israel could meet with God in that sacred space. All the rescue and redemption, all the commandments and laws, all the instructions for a tabernacle and priesthood were preparing Israel for Leviticus. How can golden calf worshipers know God? Leviticus told them. They would find the sacrifices that addressed their sin in the book of Leviticus, the priests who would help them interact with Yahweh in the book of Leviticus, and the laws regarding cleanness in God's meeting space in the book of Leviticus. So who can go into the presence of the Lord? Who can ascend God's holy hill? Can golden calf worshipers come into God's presence? Or to put it another way, who can get back to what was lost in Eden? Leviticus gives us the answer, and it's an answer that we need today. The answer is this. Those who have the right sacrifice, those who have the right priesthood, and those who have the right meeting place can experience and know the living God. I've been saying the word Leviticus. I've been talking about sacrifices this morning. And I know that for some of you, it means that it's like, oh, sweet. That means I can check out for the rest of this sermon. (laughs) This has no application to me. This is not something that is pertinent to me or to my life. But the book of Leviticus would show us, if we were to read it together, if you don't have the right sacrifice, if you don't have the right priesthood, and if you don't have the right meeting place, then it is impossible for a human being to interact with the divine or for the divine to interact with a human being. This is all a precursor, of course, to the beautiful cross of Jesus Christ. All right, so I wanna think about those three things today, the right sacrifice, the right priesthood, and the required meeting space so that we can enjoy God's presence. Okay, the first thing, coming into God's presence requires a sacrifice. Uh, This is made plain in the opening chapters of Leviticus, but is made most certain at the center point of Leviticus, which is the Day of Atonement. It's the center point of the whole Pentateuch. It's all building up to the Day of Atonement and then comes down from the Day of Atonement. It's It's the mountain peak that these first five books of the Bible are centered upon. Uh, The myriad of animal and grain and oil offerings made a way for Israel to fellowship with God and have their sin and guilt covered. Then the blood of the grand sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was to be applied everywhere, all the way to the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant where God dwelled and the assembly would be atoned for. Each year, God gave Israel this method for finding atonement for their sin. Now as Christians... We know that Jesus is the one who came to provide the ultimate, perfect, and final sacrifice. He did not go into the holy place with the blood of bulls and goats, the book of Hebrews tells us, but with his own precious and sinless blood. What this means is that we are ransomed from our sin, not with perishable things like silver or gold, as Peter said, but with the precious blood 
of Christ. It appears that when Jesus died on the cross, sin was so transferred to him that he became sin on our behalf, judged on the cross for all sin's atrocities. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he, being God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Isaiah foresaw in Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds, with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's the way of the golden calf worshiper. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So who can ascend the Lord's mountain? Who can come into God's presence? Those who are covered by the required sacrifice. And Jesus is that sacrifice. He laid down his life for us. You know, to me, I think so many of the great stories of sacrifice, they seem like shadows of the story of Jesus laying down his life in our place taking on death for our sins so that we might rise in his righteousness. Jean Valjean's quiet sacrifices for Cosette. William Wallace's sacrifices for Scotland's freedom. Captain Miller's sacrifice to save Private Ryan. Even Jack's sacrifice to save Rose, or a personal favorite of mine, Bing Bong's sacrifice to save Riley. They are all stories of sacrifice that cannot hold a candle to the great sacrifice Christ performed for his people. He paid the debt, he made the way, he laid down his life. By his stripes, we are healed. So I don't know if you thought I was gonna tell you something different today, but praise the Lord, he is the required sacrifice. Okay, the second thing I want you to see, though, from this closing to the book of Exodus is that coming into God's presence also requires a priesthood. It's not just a sacrifice, but after telling Moses all about the types of sacrifices they needed to offer, uh, what happens in Leviticus is that God has Moses ordain his brother Aaron and his sons as the priests of Israel. With the congregation gathered at the tent of meeting, Aaron and his sons donned the priestly garb that they built because of God's design in the book of Exodus. Then Moses takes the holy anointing oil and puts it on all the elements of the tabernacle, including Aaron and his sons. It's like a way of saying these priests are instruments like everything else in this tabernacle precinct. Then Moses took the blood of the bull of the sin offering and had Aaron and his sons put their hands on it while he killed it, a way for them to identify with the brokenness of the people, their own sin. Then Moses offered the ram of the burnt offering and the ram of the ordination, all while Aaron and his sons placed their hands on the heads of both. Then he took the blood of the ram and put it on their ears and on their hands and on their feet as a way to consecrate their every move Unto God. It's like everywhere you go, everything you do, everything you consume, it belongs to me. You're mine now. 
Then after placing a bit more anointing oil on a blood-bought Aaron and his sons, Moses charged them to offer sacrifices and remain at the tabernacle for seven days. You guys need to go in, hang out with God for seven days. On the eighth day, Moses called them and told them to offer sacrifices for themselves and then for the people. And after they did, look at what Leviticus says. It says in Exodus, Leviticus 9, 22, then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burn offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. What what happened there? At the end of Exodus, Moses could not go in, but now he does go in. Aaron and his sons have been installed as the priests of Israel. Sacrifices have been offered, access has been granted, and with that, Aaron and his sons became the priests of Yahweh who would help Israel come into God's presence. But we know that those priests only pointed forward to a greater priest who would come. It says in Hebrews 4, verse 14, that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He is our great mediator, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.5. Because of him and the way that he relates to us, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. We can go in to God's presence because we are amazing people. No, no. We can go into God's presence because our church attendance record has been so stellar this year. No. We can go into God's presence because our thoughts have been pure and clean and holy and right for six or seven days now. No. We can go in because our great high priest, Jesus, shed his own blood to make the way for us. Our access to God's presence has been secured by Jesus, exclusively secured. What I mean by that is no one else can grant that access. It belittles what Jesus has done to suppose so. It is permanently secured in that it is based on his position, works, and purity, not our own. It is totally secured in that because He can go all the way in. We can go all the way in. And it is finally secured. And that there is no other sacrifice or path coming to make God available to man. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No man comes to the Father except by him. He is the only priest that can get us into God's presence. All right, the last thing I want you to see, though, is that Not only do we need the right sacrifice and the right priest, but it also requires, for us to to know God, it requires a meeting space. What do I mean by that? I think this is one that we sometimes forget as New Testament people. But the sacrifices and the priesthood would have meant nothing without God's intention to dwell in the tabernacle. God, God decided 
That's where I'm going to be. I'm going to go there. It, it was the meeting space that God himself had sanctioned. Just as God had made Eden to meet with man, and just as God descended upon Mount Sinai as a, an appointment place with Moses, God created the tabernacle as a holy space that heaven would touch earth. This was like God's incremental invasion of planet earth. He's taking another step in our direction in this tabernacle system. In fact, the tabernacle was patterned after God's eternal throne room, the Bible tells us, which adds force to the idea that it was the singular space on earth where the divine and human could fully interact. That tabernacle, which was later developed into Jerusalem's temple, was the singular place where heaven and earth overlapped. And I want to impress this idea upon you. The tabernacle precincts were that move from heaven toward earth. When, when a person uh, wants to swim underwater for a really long period of time, there's a only a couple ways to do it, but one way is you gotta wear a bunch of scuba gear, right? You, you've, gotta, you've gotta put the tank on, you gotta have the mask and the flippers and the, the whole deal. That's what the tabernacle was. It was a way to allow humans to breathe in a different environment and for God to breathe in our environment. Tabernacle precinct with all its prescribed sacrifices and consecrated furniture and holy priesthood. It was like God's scuba gear for heaven to come to earth or for earth to survive a bit of heaven. But the kicker is this. Jesus is our new tabernacle. He's our new meeting space with God. When Jesus came along, he often said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like he's announcing, with my coming, I'm bringing heaven to earth more than it has ever been brought to earth up to this point. And he could say this because he became the new meeting space for humanity to know God. When John wrote in John chapter one that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, what he meant is that the creator God became one of us. He took up residence and he tabernacled among us. His hypostatic union, the full convergence of his deity and humanity makes Jesus the new meeting space. How can we come into God's presence through the meeting ground that is Jesus? When Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That veil separated the most holy place from everything and everyone else. But by ripping it from top to bottom, God was signifying that he had just initiated the replacement path to his presence. We no longer go behind a veil. We come to God through the blood of the Son. And the Son of God and God the Son, Jesus, he is our meeting ground with God. So that's the end of the book of Exodus. It concludes with God's increased presence among his people, which to me is really cool when you consider how the book began. With his glory cloud resting upon the tabernacle in the midst of the camp, 
This is powerful to consider when you think about how the book started. God was present at the beginning of Exodus, but like in a shadow or a whisper. You had to see behind the scenes to know that God was there. But behind the scenes, God preserved and defended the people of Israel as they struggled under the mighty hand of Pharaoh. He was there, but in subtle and indirect ways. He blessed the midwives, remember them? He steered baby Moses' basket in the Nile River to Pharaoh's daughter. He heard the cry of his suffering people. But now as the book closes, his presence becomes undeniably direct and obvious and evident as he descends upon his house. Israel no longer has to follow Pharaoh's dictates from now on. They can just follow God. Now we know the rest of the story. They didn't always just follow God, but they could. He's right there in the glory cloud and pillar of fire. When he moves, they move. At the beginning of Exodus, the Hebrews might have asked, where is the Lord? And Pharaoh did ask, who is the Lord? But now at Exodus's end, everyone knows Yahweh God is right there among his people, his treasured possession. Just as Aslan was at first indirect and invisible, felt more than seen, only to come to his people's aid before finally breaking the white witch's grip, Yahweh had worked behind the scenes before now taking center stage. And now with the Lord at their center, Israel could start their great journey into the promised land, just as when God gives us exodus, now we can start our great journey into the deeper things that God has in store for us. One exodus followed by thousands of exoduses. But the book also concludes with this little cliffhanger we've thought about today, designed to push us forward in the biblical story. Moses could not enter. That pushes us forward into Leviticus, where we find the sacrifices and priesthood and the meeting space that were required to meet with God. But what I want to say as I conclude our time in the book of Exodus is that all of that should push us past Leviticus to Jesus, the one who is better than Moses. Like Moses, he was born under threat from a murderous king. Like Moses, he came out of the wilderness and began working miracles. Like Moses, he showed the way to true deliverance from captivity through the blood of his cross. Like Moses, he went up the mountain and was transfigured before his people. And like Moses, he delivered a new Torah in his Sermon on the Mount. Like Moses, he brought a covenant, a better covenant. But unlike Moses, he could go into the Father's holy presence because that's his home. That's where he had come from, like Moses. Or maybe, after all this time looking at the life of Moses in the book of Exodus, we have just discovered that Moses was like Jesus, a mere shadow of the great deliverer who came, the only one who could enter the glory because he is God in the flesh. Maybe Moses points us forward to Jesus. I heard someone ask the question recently, are you an Old Testament guy or a New Testament guy? What? (laughs) I'm a Bible guy because it's all bringing us back to the cross of Christ. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, 
please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.